And briefly, as we look at this, we'll talk about some things related to the end times, and we'll just call this insight to the future. Matthew chapter 24, I will read the first four verses, and then we will pray. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we're grateful to be able to fellowship we're so happy to be able to look into the word of the Lord tonight. We pray that you would help us to understand a few of the things that you have told us will come to pass in the future. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. I think there are very few subjects that garner the kind of attention and sometimes suspicion like Bible prediction garners. There are people that are fascinated by this topic, as many of us are, but then there are other people that just have a hard time believing that anybody in ancient times could have had information about things related to tomorrow. But if we believe Jesus was God in the flesh, then we certainly have to be able to understand that he not only understood the past, as well as the present, and then everything taking place in the future. So when we look into scripture, then Matthew gives us a number of sermons that Jesus has that are recorded. One being the Sermon on the Mount, several chapters, chapters five, six, seven. But then we also have in the Gospel of Luke what they call the Sermon in the Plain, which also is a fairly lengthy message. And we don't want to forget the parables that we have starting with Matthew 13. But here, this Olivet Discourse is certainly one of the most important chapters related to the end times. And this chapter goes along with Mark 13 and Luke 21. These three chapters, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, they complement each other. They even supplement one another, and you have to read each of these in order to find out these different added perspectives because each chapter gives information that the other chapter does not give. So, for instance, Luke begins his discourse by telling us Jesus and his disciples were sitting in the treasury of the temple. They were watching how people were giving. And there was an elderly lady that came by and cast in some money and Jesus said to the disciples, behold, this poor lady who's put in this money, she's given more money than all of the other people because she cast into the offering receptacle out of her penury or out of her poverty, what her lack, what she didn't have. And so it was more of a sacrifice for her to give because she really didn't have to give. But she voluntarily gave anyhow, whereas other people were giving, but it wasn't necessarily 
a difficulty for them to give might have been tipping God or just giving something, you know, something like that. But Luke is the one that gives us the the insight related to the, the treasury aspect. And it's at that point, Jesus gets up with his disciples and they're making their way out of the temple. And Mark then is the one who tells us that one of the disciples said to Jesus, behold, the beautiful buildings here, aren't they magnificent? I mean, they were just really excited to see these. Now, you might wonder why. Well, let's not forget this temple had been in the process of being refurbished by Herod for over 40 years. And he was really making it pretty. And then we, we, we don't want to forget that the people who were in Galilee were not accustomed to seeing buildings this beautiful. And I think it would be like, let's say, 60 or 70 years ago, if you lived out in the country and it was very rare that you got to town, you were excited about the opportunity to go to town. And if town didn't excite you, imagine how happy you would have been to make it to Lincoln or to Omaha, and to see those big skyscrapers. So this is how it kind of was with these adults who are looking at that. They're saying these things are beautiful, they're majestic, and Jesus, in the middle of all of their enthusiasm, he says, look, there's, you see these buildings and everything, but he said there's not going to be one stone left upon another. There's trouble coming to this temple mount, and I'm telling you, this temple isn't going to last anymore, any longer. And they thought, what in the world is he talking about? So this is where we get into what Matthew records as the three questions. All of them, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, ask one identical question, and that is, when will these things be? All of them ask that question. The other question that Mark and Luke ask is, what will be the sign of the fulfillment or the completion of these things? But Matthew is the one who goes into particular with three questions. When shall these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and then of the end of the age? So in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, you've got three questions that have to be answered. The first question, when shall these things be? He starts with Matthew 24, verse 4. But in 24, verse 29, he begins to talk about the coming, the return. But in chapter 25, verse 31, it's then he begins to talk about the end when the Lord returns, sits down on his throne and judgment is going to be meted out. So with these variations and with all of these things complementing one another, that question, when shall these things, these things be, that becomes important. And the answer to either of the question requires some direct observation on our part. We have to pay attention to what's going on amongst the nations. We have to pay attention to changes in culture, changes in attitude. Now, before I start tackling some of these verses, let me say this. In the Bible, whenever God forecasts the future, He'll speak plainly sometimes, and then other times he won't speak so plainly. It'll be figurative. In Matthew 24, this is one of these occasions where he's going to speak very clearly, and you'll, you'll see that. But we don't want to forget that there are times where predictions are made, and you can't understand exactly what's taking place. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph had the, the uh, dream of the, the, the sheaves of corn bowing. Joseph didn't have any idea what that was about. Then he saw the stars in the 
in in the sky and it looked like they they were all acquiescing to one he he didn't he didn't understand that and let's not forget that uh, Ezekiel had some visions that weren't always so clear to him or to other people chapter 37 he saw a valley filled with dry bones and then suddenly the bones started coming together and then it's at that point God said to him these bones coming together represent the restoration and the recovery of the nation of Israel and Daniel Visions of beasts, visions of a statue, and the book of Revelation we know is filled with all kinds of symbolism. How many times have we heard people try to describe what the mark of the beast is going to be, or who the beast is going to be? So on those occasions, the Lord didn't always speak clearly, but we, we do have in this particular chapter where he communicates his truth with such clarity that you cannot mistake what he's saying. And in verse 4, Jesus answered them and he said, Take heed that no man deceive you. That is to say, you be very cautious and be very wary. Keep your eyes open regarding what's going on because there's going to be some things that take place in verse 5. Many going to come in my name saying, I'm Christ and shall deceive many. So that tells you there will be a rise of false Christ. Now, something false is something that's not true, but something that's false can imitate what is true. It can resemble what is true to the point that that it looks like it's authentic, but it's not genuine at all. And when he says that you have to take care that you're not deceived, that is to tell you that you will be or you can be deceived if you're not cautious. You have to listen to what people are saying. You have to pay attention to what people are teaching. You have to observe what's taking place amongst politicians and their policies and things like that. Now, when he goes on and he says, many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. Let's remember the word Christ means anointed. The word Christ also is like a Messiah figure. But I want to emphasize, if, if we have a false Christ... And let's go now quickly to 2 Corinthians 11. Then typically we're going to have a false gospel. It's not too chilly in here for everybody, is it? Everybody okay? Okay. 2 Corinthians 11. Notice verse number 4. This, this I think you'll find very interesting. For he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we've not preached. Or if you receive another spirit which... All of you have not received or another gospel which ye have not accepted, you might well bear with him. Now, let's back up then. Verse two, I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Second Corinthians eleven three. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So Jesus in Matthew 24, in, in working on the last days and opening our eyes to the things that are going to take place, he makes a number of predictions. And the prediction we have here is there are going to be many that come and say that they are the Christ. So if we have a false Christ, then we can also have and we must have a false gospel. If we have a false gospel, which is portraying a false Christ, then quite naturally, we have to have a false way of salvation. Those three always go together. 
Wherever there's a false Christ, there's a false good news, false kind of good news. So when you go back and you think of, who is this? Uh, David Koresh, Waco. Remember the FBI and the people surrounding that and the thing was burned down and all of those people died. Let's remember, these folks honestly believed he was the Messiah to lead them into Armageddon. And they assumed that the coming of the police was their Armageddon. Why did they think that? Because he was preaching to them inside that compound nearly every day, a false gospel. And they accepted him as the uh, true anointed one of God. Don't forget Jim Jones. These are all the popular ones. But then you, you have the, the, the ones that didn't have any connection at all with Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, people thought they were significantly anointed. Let's not forget the gentleman. I can't even remember his name, but he had everybody believing they could catch a ride on the back of the Halibop Comet. And they had him on the cover of magazines. And when you looked at his eyes, he looked utterly deceived. But when they found him and his followers, they were all laying there, I think, in purple sweatsuits or something like that. Everything had been laid out, organized in a, in, a, in a very orderly fashion. And they were under the impression that they're going to get on that thing and spend all of eternity or however long just riding through the heavens on the back of a comet. Now, folks, that's, that's deception. Okay, that's deception. God doesn't teach anything like that, never has taught anything like that. So a false Christ, a false gospel, false way of salvation. Now Jesus makes it simple. To become a Christian, to be saved from sin, we simply repent, believe upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, by his Holy Spirit, is the one that regenerates us, makes it possible for us to become new creatures in Christ. And, and, and that, that method, that scheme is outlined in, Ephes- in Ephesians chapter 1. It says that having heard the gospel, first you hear it, then we believed, then having believed, then we're sealed. So God puts his mark on us. He puts his brand on us. So it's calving season for, for some people. And, of course, they're tagging calves. And some are branding. And the whole point of that, you want to put a mark on them so that you understand who belongs to who. So the scripture says the Lord knows the, those that belong to him. That means if you're born again, you love the Lord, you're in the kingdom, and even though it's not visible to the natural eye, the angels and the devil knows that God's put his mark on you. You belong to him. So that's the true way of salvation. A false way of salvation would be to have you believe in something that cannot actually make you a better person anyhow. A false way of salvation. Trust in your own good works, your own merit. That would be false. For you to believe that you're, you're saved because you, um, you try to keep the golden rule. You know, the golden rule, which is love everybody, treat everybody the way you want to be treated. There are a lot of nice people, a lot of sincere people that are not Christian who work to keep the golden rule. And not to mention that there are a lot of people who have tried to find salvation through other faiths and other religions. And they have gone through a lot of self-sacrifice and difficulties because they're trying to show their love and their affection for God. So Jesus says in Matthew 24 again here, notice in verse 4, he says, take heed that nobody deceive you. And then he says in verse 5 that there's going to come some false Christ and shall deceive many. So the spread of deception will be great. 
spread of deception. That is one of the predictions of the Lord Jesus Christ for the last days. I should have said this part in the beginning, but but I I did didn't. But I'll make it plain right now. People wonder sometimes how in the world could all of these things happen? And Jesus said that this generation is not going to pass away until these things occur. Well, the prophecies that Jesus gives here come right up to verse 21, which is right before the great tribulation begins. The Bible says that there will be tribulation in this world such as has never existed from the beginning of the world and will never occur after it. So that's why a lot of these things weren't fulfilled exactly in the time of the disciples because they were not that generation. But the generation who's passing through all of these and very well could be us, this generation will not pass until these things come to pass. The spread of deception. Recently, there was a uh, some some old ancient papers found, and there was a lady over at a Ivy League university that published one of these, and it was called the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. I don't know if any of you saw some of the essays in National Geographic and Smithsonian magazines and stuff like that not too long ago. But but this lady was arguing that Jesus actually was married, and it was something that people were trying to keep hidden. Now, a couple of people that I'm acquainted with that uh, over at Harvard University, they were working on this, and they detected immediately this thing's a forgery. And that's exactly what they came out and said. And then when they found out, in the end, that's exactly what it was. Imagine that, a forgery. Now, these things happen quite often, but it shows you how deception can occur. There was an artist named Galileo, and and this man had he had made a whole bunch of sculptors sculptures and drawings and stuff like that and people people found a, a a book with all kinds of artistic designs in it and they had it authenticated by some scholars in the university over there in Germany and and all of them got together and they looked at it and they said this is true this is real this goes back a few hundred years and i mean it was worth a whole lot of money to some people until they began to check the origins and the source of it. The person who had uh, made the, the sale and they found out that it was a fake. And the man who made it and forged it is now in jail. But imagine how many reputations were damaged because they authenticated something that wasn't real. And, and you see this in, in the world today when we think of People who follow folks who are false and are wrong and then think of the shame that they feel afterwards and they say, how in the world did I get caught up in that? And it never was true. That that happens quite often. When I lived in Turkey back in, in 92 and 93 in Kiev, Russia, there were a group of people who honestly believed that Jesus was going to come back on a certain day. These folks sold all of their belongings and went out into a park waiting for Jesus to come, stayed up all night expecting him to come. Sunrise came and they still were all in the park. Yeah. In the second century, the Jewish people, they thought Bar Kokhva was the Messiah. They even had printed coins. That had an image of him with a star over his head as the Messiah, Bar Kokhba died. And 
When you go into the medieval times and think of that man, Sabbatai Zvi, he had thousands of followers, multitudes of Jewish people that accepted him as the Messiah. He also passed away, but not before he converted to Islam. There have been a lot of false messiahs in the history of this world, and not even 25, 26 years ago over in New York, the, the Orthodox Jews in that area had a gentleman, he passed away in 92, 93. They honestly believed he was the Messiah and that he would be resurrected from the dead. He still hadn't come back. Rabbi, I think his name was Schneerson. So Jesus said, be wary because he knew that in the last days there would be false people arising. That is what we're seeing. Notice verse 6. He said, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, kingdom against kingdom. And there'll be famines and pestilences and earthquakes. Now, we've got to understand the history of war because the seeds of it go all the way back to, to Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Man rose up and slew his own brother, and then problems just began after that. First warfare we have in the Bible recorded has to do with Abraham fighting with uh, the kings against the kings of the east. That's organized warfare. He's the first general that we have in the Bible. Where the scripture says he had trained soldiers in his household. But from the ancient Middle East, they've found these old clay tablets called cuneiform, and they've got these etchings and scratchings in them, and they tell the story of a lot of ancient battles. Same things with the hieroglyphs in, in, in Egypt. If you've ever been inside some of the old pyramids or been into the Egyptian museum, then you'll see all of that. And then they've got these guys, that are, these Egyptologists that are tour guides that will walk you through the museum and tell you all about the hieroglyphs and interpret them for you. Tell you about the different wars they've had. One dynasty fighting with another dynasty. This stuff has gone on for a long time. Classical Greek, Homer's Iliad. Most people forget that even though the Iliad only covers four days of the siege of Troy, the entire war was about the recovery of a beautiful woman. He said Helen was the most beautiful woman in the ancient world. And can you imagine nations going to battle over a lady? And that's, that's what happened. When you look into the Old Testament and you look at Joshua, Judges, Samuel, you see battles, people fighting. And this, this has continued even on up into the day in which we live right now. So in verse, verse number six, when it says you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, that means there's going to be talk. It's going to be broadcast. People are going to be constantly thinking about that. And the reason, reason for that is verse seven, you've got nations rising up against nations. So here are ethnic groups. That's the Greek word behind nations, nationalities, ethnic groups rising up against ethnic groups. Tribes against tribes. Okay, well, I think we can see that in the time frame we're living now. You have, you have people in America who, they're all about emphasizing our differences. So let's not forget, black lives matter. Black lives matter. And they've got a fist going up in the air. Black Lives Matter. And they're ready to fight. And if they, if they can, they'll take to the streets and might loot and everything else. 
But then on the other side of that, you go to some places in the south and other places, and then you'll have the, the white knights that are being revived. And they said, let's not forget about the white race. We're being pushed down. We're the forgotten people. And, and they'll put on all their regalia and go out there. Not to mention that we're seeing in parts of the southern parts of the states where people are flying uh, Mexican flags and other things. So the, the point I'm trying to emphasize is Jesus saw in the last days there would be tension, division, discord, and strife, and you would constantly have groups going against one another. Now, I know as well as you do that it's demonic, and the devil is doing everything he can to keep people from getting, get, getting along. However, it's all fulfilling prophecy because Jesus saw it back there in the, uh, in the beginning. Now, we, we've had a lot of wars in this century, and... And every day that goes by, we lose somebody else that's a World War II veteran, you see, and Korean veteran. And pretty soon it'll be the same with Vietnam War. And you lose those voices, you lose the stories. And it'll be the same with the Gulf Wars. But the issue is that people go to war for a variety of different reasons. Jesus didn't really get into the variety of reasons. He just simply said, people are going to be talking about war, and there's going to be war, and it's going to be in every generation. You can see it all the time. People are fighting and going to battle. But Jesus said, don't be troubled. Notice that. He said, don't, don't be troubled in verse number six. These, are, these must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, how can he say, do not be troubled? I mean, you know as well as I do how bad war is. And it creates a lot of tension. But I want to read a verse to you from John 14, verse 27. Listen to what this says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now that that seems to be a straightforward message. And how can Jesus say to us in the midst of war not to be troubled? Well, he's able to say it because he was the same way. He wasn't troubled. And he lived under that regime called the Roman Empire. And contrary to what you may hear preachers say from time to time on television and radio, they say at the birth of Jesus Christ, all wars ceased and there was peace all over the place. I'm telling there was war all over this earth in that Roman Empire when Jesus was born. Because Augustus was doing everything he could to expand his empire. There was lots of wars taking place over in, in England and parts of Rome. The Pannonian conflict, they call it. And then by the time Jesus was crucified, then he had Tiberius, Claudius, Nero on the throne. And he, he was murdering all kinds of people as he was trying to expand the empire. But here's what Jesus said. Don't be troubled. So as, as Christians... With everything that's taking place, the Lord said these are just the beginning of sorrows. And notice the category. He names these things as sorrows. They bring grief and concern. But you shouldn't allow your faith to be shaken or disturbed. There was a great preacher years ago named Charles Templeton, who was a best friend in the early days or late 30s, early 40s with Mr. Billy Graham. And Mr. Templeton, in some folks' estimation, was a better preacher than Mr. Graham. They were travelers together for the Youth for Christ and held crusades across North America together. But this gentleman started having some doubts about some scripture. He was having conversations with Billy about it. 
And I guess back during uh, World War II, the, the way they broadcast what was going on over in Europe was that you, you just about had to go to a theater and then they'd kind of show it before the movie or something like that or after the movie, however that worked out. And this man went and he saw the results of that Holocaust, and all the Jews that had died, the bones that were amassed and the people stepping over those and, and those terrible uh, incinerators that they were using and he sat there in that movie theater and he was horrified by it and he was crying and, and he came out of that with with the impression that how can there be a god that let that happen to people on this earth so his faith was shaken his faith was so disturbed that that, that having walked out of there and started questioning god he ended up going to a seminary somewhere and he and the faculty in the seminary all of the faculty disbelieved in the supernatural scripture. So it was a, it was a critical deal. The, the, the faculty members taught critical scholarship. Now critical scholarship starts with Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. That's where they begin. They begin with Jesus was not without sin, that he never claimed to be God. That's where they start with their teaching. They begin with he did not die on the cross to atone for anybody's sins, that he certainly wasn't resurrected, he did not ascend to heaven, and he's not a judge because he's not coming back to deal with anybody. He's just dead. That's where critical scholars start in most university curriculums when they're teaching preachers. So this man was having discussions with, with Billy Graham, and he was expressing his concerns to Billy. And, and he said to Billy Graham, how can you believe in the creation story with all the scientific evidence that we have today that shows that the earth isn't that old? And he's going into all of this. And, and I like what Billy Graham said to him. He said, look, he said, I, I'm not a geologist. He said, I'm not a scientist. God called me to preach the Bible. And he said, I believe what's in the Bible, and I believe and I accept it by faith. So I'm going to preach the book. And that's what Billy did. And from that point, this man, Billy, went one direction preaching the gospel. This other gentleman went the other direction. And by the end of his life, he'd wrote an autobiography explaining why he had left the faith and no longer believed Jesus Christ was the Savior. Now imagine that. To live a long life like he did and to go out of this world disbelieving the very thing that you once preached. Let me read what Jesus said again in verse 6. These things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. But see that ye be not troubled. You have to go out of your way to guard your heart. I can't tell you what kind of wars are going to take place in the next five years or the next 20 years. I can only tell you that if we do have war, people are going to die. And if people are dying, it's going to be ugly. It's not going to be pretty at all, but nothing's going to happen then that's different than what's happening right now. There's probably not a, not a family in here represented that hadn't been touched by one of the wars of the last 80 years here in this country. But you still have to maintain your faith in God, despite that. And this is what Jesus is teaching us. So he goes on to say, then in, in verse 7 there, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, and diverse places. Naturally, if you have war, like in ancient times when you lay siege to a particular place, you don't let food in, you don't let products out, so that's going to produce shortages of food and famine. Today we use the word sanction. We don't say we lay siege to a city, we say we put sanctions on a people. And then pestilences. If you're going to have shortages of food and dealing with starvation, then you can expect that there will be people who start doing things, eating things that they shouldn't eat, 
Book of Kings tells the story about how the folks were eating donkeys' heads and birds' dung. And so pestilences, diseases are going to proliferate. Jesus said in the last days, that's what's going to happen. I have no doubt that there were diseases back then that are no longer in existence right now. I wouldn't doubt that at all. But I also believe we have diseases in existence today that didn't exist back then. And it's not going to surprise me if in the next few years they start coming out with other diseases that we don't know about right now because of sin. I believe that. I do. And Jesus said, these are the beginning of sorrow. So verse 9, he goes into persecution. He said, they're going to deliver you up. You'll be afflicted and they'll kill you. So he's telling you there'll be times when in the final days people will be tortured and then they'll go through a very violent death. Verse number 10 Excuse me, the last sentence of verse number nine says, you'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake. The hatred will be connected to the name of Jesus. It'll be connected to the person of Jesus. Hatred. We're not just talking about somebody who just doesn't like you because of this. Or that. We're talking about an intense hatred. Now, if you follow television at all, you can see a little bit of this hostility in, in uh, the faces and in the comments of what what are made on television by, by certain people. But, but it's interesting to me, <clears throat> if we look at this from a historical vantage point. In the Far East, Jesus isn't that popular because people are involved with Shintoism, Buddhism. Uh, sometimes it may be some other kind of ancestral worship, Sikhism or something, whatever they're involved with, Hinduism. In the Middle East, we know that Jesus isn't beloved as, a, as the son of God and the one that died on the cross because Islam is strong. So, you know, there's intense hostility against Christians in those places. So in Africa, the, the, the countries where there are Muslim majorities, if, if you ever notice on a map and if you've ever paid attention to uh, people giving testimony coming back and forth from Africa, northern, the northern parts of the country are Muslim. The southern parts of the country are Christian. The same in Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria, Kenya, East African countries. I don't know why that is. Just the migratory patterns. But think of this. If you look at flags in Europe, most of those flags have some kind of historical connection to Christianity. If you look at the, the crests and the, the historical arms of, of some of these, these nations, they usually have some kind of image that's connected to the cross, connected to something with a, a Christ or someone crusading on, on behalf of Christ or something like that. And you think of it and, and you can see where nations who built upon that foundation, they excelled and they're not called third war, third world nations. How about Western civilization? Then you look at us, our, our pilgrim fathers, founding fathers for the most part, came from Europe. The pilgrims came here with Geneva Bibles in the boat with them. They read the Bible. They were believing the Bible. They were trusting in the God of Scripture. If if it didn't rain, and preachers got up there and they preached, they said, look, God's angry with us here in the colonies because we're missing church and we're not serving him, and you folks need to get to church so the, he opened up the heavens. I mean, they preached. They thundered that. But the foundation was laid, so you had Jesus in nearly every aspect of civic discourse, Literature, training. But you look at us now. 
You look at how hostile France and Italy and places are to the gospel. And I don't mean just they have a dislike for it. I mean, there's an intense hatred for it. You look at what's happening here in our own nation right now with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. People don't mind if you pray in the name of God, but they do have a problem if you mention the name of Jesus. Once you mention the name of Jesus, that's when the antagonism starts. Because if you say Jesus, then whoever has some idea of the story of Jesus, they know that the basic teaching is he was God, he became man. Having become man, he lived without sin. He died on the cross for people's sin. Then he was resurrected. He went back to heaven. He's going to be somebody's judge. So that means if he died to become a raised savior for people, then people need to be saved from something. If they have to be saved from something, they have to be saved from sin. So every time you mention Jesus, you're saying, I'm a sinner. They don't want to hear that. And this is why there's such intense hatred around the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he predicted this and said, that's exactly how it's going to be. Persecution is not going to be because they don't like your clothing or because they don't like your nationality, even though I'm sure that happens. But he says, they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. Mark goes so far as to explain to us that fathers are going to betray sons. Sons are going to betray fathers. Daughters are going to betray mothers. Can you imagine something so so, so uh, mean-spirited that we don't want people to become Christians. Well, it, it says here in verse, verse number uh, 10 here that there shall be many offended and betray one another shall hate one another again. Now, you think about that, that word offended. If, if people are going to be offended in the last days, then there has to be a rise in offenses that create this offendedness okay now why are people offended today because they're easily offended people are offended if you say lay person excuse me layman rather than lay person if you use a word that has the male gender we can't say mankind see that that's that bothers people today you got to change the way you write in books and in articles, uh, people are offended today if you use B.C. and A.D. as your descriptions in time. You have to say B.C.E. before the common era or C.E. the common era. But e- even then, I-, I still interpret B.C.E. as before the Christian era. C.E., the Christian era. But, but it, it, it's that way. So there's an offendedness. Why are people offended today? They're offended because you won't recognize how they want to be identified. I know I'm a guy, but if I identify as a girl, and I self-identify as a girl, then who are you to tell me different? And if I tell you to call me Darlene, you better call me Darlene or we're going to court. See? Call me Daryl. Let's stick with it. Let's stick with that. Okay. So here, here we have in this, in these last days, uh, people on their jobs having to walk on eggshells so that they don't say the wrong thing. You just accidentally say something. Sexual harassment. I knew you were a racist. See? Offendedness. That kind of a thing. And Jesus saw it and he made the statement 
Many will be offended and shall betray one another. How are they going to betray one another? We see it when they take folks to court. We see it when they undermine people's authority and try to get them thrown out and killed. And then we see it here and it says they shall hate one another. Now you can just watch some of the morning talk shows, folks, and you can see the hatred and hostility come out if you don't accept their versions of how certain people groups ought to be respected and acknowledged. Hatred, you see, hatred. I, I was on an airplane a couple of months ago, and I read, I thought it would be interesting to look at this, but somebody had an old, uh, say old it's maybe last year's National Geographic, and it was talking about gender. And I didn't know, maybe you knew this, but I didn't know that there are 26 different genders for humans. I didn't know that. I thought there was just boy and girls, male and female. There are 26 and I read that and I thought, no wonder everybody's offended. People don't even know what they are. So if, if I'm unclear on my identity, then quite naturally I'm going to be offended when you can't get, get it right. So here, here we have instances again in connection with, with the offense. Now the person that loves the Lord Jesus Christ with, with their whole heart, I can, I can promise you part of the betrayal and uh, shall hate one another, here's how it's going to be manifested. Right now, somebody, talking about politics now, if, if somebody wants a, a government job and they've got to go before the, the Senate or the Congress or something like that, in particular the Senate, and they've got to hold hearings and they've got to answer questions, we saw on one occasion where they asked the man, uh, do you go to such and such church and does your church teach this and do you believe this? And I, I watched the gentleman as he uh, really tried to dance all around it and didn't want to answer it. I knew the answer was yes, because he wouldn't be at the church if he didn't believe it. But I thought to myself, we're, we're coming to a time in this nation where if you hold a job maybe for federal government, state, county, maybe even the city, possibly even school teacher or something like that, if, if they find out that you attend a church that is uh, much more literal in their interpretation of the scripture, there's a possibility folks will lose their job or they just won't ever be hired because you have such hostility towards the Lord. And it wouldn't surprise me, even people who, who self-contract themselves out, you, you'll have people that say, let's call for a boycott on him or her because we found out they don't accept us in our lifestyle, so we just don't want to have anything to do. Don't, don't take any business to them. And, and, and this is the kind of stuff that leads many people to hide their faith and not uh, exhibit a strong, robust witness. Let me just give you a couple of more here. In, in verse, verse number 11, And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many false prophets. He's mentioned false Christ. So here we have false prophets. Now, if you've got false prophets, you'll have false prophecies. There'll be people speaking in the name of the Lord, and it'll be, be entirely, entirely wrong, and it'll lead to great, great deception. Now, we've had a lot of that, and I mentioned a few names of people here earlier that led or misled people in the wrong direction, but the history of the church is filled with false prophets, even the Old Testament. Jeremiah had to deal with Hananiah. Jeremiah was telling the Israelites, Babylonian captivity is coming. 
when they take us there, we're going to be there 70 years. Build homes when you get there because you're not leaving. And he said, just get ready to be there for several decades. Hananiah comes along, the false prophet, and he takes a yoke and he puts the yoke around his neck and then he puts the yoke in his hands and then he breaks the yoke. And he said, <clears throat> he says, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as I've broken this yoke, the yoke of the Babylonians will be broken over your life. You say, what happened? The people rejoiced. They said, yes, Hananiah is a man of God outstanding. And then the Babylonians came and carried them all to Iraq. And that's where they were for 70 years. So you will hear of false prophets and false prophecies. We, we've all uh, seen them, heard them. Uh, I've certainly had my uh, share in dealing with them. Wife and I one time were in a church in a, another town, <clears throat> another city. And uh, this, these, these people were on television. And, and so these these folks, they pointed me out in that crowd and they had me stand up. You know, we, we don't own black folks in the, in the thing. So it wasn't easy for us. It wasn't hard for us to stand out. So he said, stand up. And so I, I said, I'd rather not. And, uh, then he doing his little thing. He just went over there, started prophesying and he started telling about how I need to resign my churches and I need to come and sit up under that particular pastor. Now, if I would listen to what that gentleman had said, I wouldn't be here with you good folks. I mean, that church didn't even stay open another year. You see? see pe people will give false statements and believe it's God. When years ago I was preaching on the East Coast, a friend of mine said, I want you to watch this video. I said, okay. And, and uh, there was a, a gentleman who was very, very popular in the full gospel world. He was running for the Senate. And for, for his, uh, for his state over there and had a big strong church, 25, 30,000 people in that church. And so I'm watching this minister's conference and this preacher, he pulls the man up and, and he's he, in front of thousands of people at the conference. He's saying to him, now, let's say the Lord, you, you look, you're going to be the next senator for this particular state and he goes on and on and I was looking at that I told my friend I said I'm telling you that's going to be quite remarkable if it happens just like just like he said well once his his congregation of 30,000 or so people once they found out what his salary was because you know you got to declare all that stuff publicly once they found out what his what the pastor's salary was uh, those people started leaving that church immediately they said there's no reason for anybody to make that uh, obscene amount of money and then he lost the race anyhow in a landslide and and I remember talking to my friend afterwards and I said to him I said Paul made the statement in 1 Corinthians 11 he said you have to have heresy so that truth can be revealed and I said you'll never be able to accept and appreciate the true unless you have to wrestle with the false and I said when these things happen I said Individual, I have no doubt, loves God. If he fell over dead, he'd go to heaven. But, but sometimes in our exuberance to, to try to be spiritual, we just say things we don't need to say. Jesus said false prophets will arise and deceive many. Now, I'll, I'll finish with this. The 19th century gave birth in this nation to, I think, a larger number of churches than probably any other century in this history. So 19th century, we ended up with 
Christian scientists, the whole holiness movement, churches of Christ, disciples of Christ. Uh, we have the Nazarene church, the Mormons, and so forth and so on. Well, there was a, a gentleman by the name of Robert Matthews who was married, had kids, felt like he was called to be a preacher. So this man, he felt like he'd had a dream and the Lord told him that he was supposed to be a, like the Messiah, the anointed one to come. So he, he changed his name from Robert Matthews. He took the name from Acts chapter 1. One of the uh, guys that were voted on to take the place of Judas was Matthias. So he changed his name to Matthias. That's what he was known as. He grew a long beard and was running around and doing all of this stuff. Well, well over there in New York, in, in places, he met a businessman. And they had a whole lot of money, this man and his wife, and they had a big home. And Robert Matthews was getting thrown out of place to place because he was teaching all of this false doctrine. Well, he somehow got connected with this man and his wife, and they, they kind of fell into what he was teaching and believed it. And so pretty soon he moved into the home with them. He left his wife and his kids in another state. And he moved in with them, and he's teaching them this doctrine. They accepted his beliefs, and that other man started believing he was supposed to be the prophet to let everybody know that Robert Matthews was the Messiah. And they had a bunch of people coming to stay in that house. And as you will have it, when you've got false doctrine and false prophecies, uh, said you're going to have false ways of salvation and stuff. Pretty soon, Matthias came up with the idea, well, with all of these men that are in here now, and, and their sisters and their wives and everybody, we, we, we've got to propagate the kingdom. So I believe, I believe God has shown me that uh, your wife is a match spirit with me. How you like that? Like that, don't you? Your wife, to whom you've been legally wed all these years, I think she's supposed to be with me at night. And so pretty soon, that's exactly what happened. Had all this stuff going on, wickedness, corruption. When, when it was all over, he ended up in jail. The other leaders ended up in jail. And, and once again, somebody that was false was proved to be so. Jesus said what's done in the dark is going to come to light. But quoting him one more time in Matthew 24, take heed that no man deceive you. If it was easy to keep from being deceived, we wouldn't have so many people in this world deceived by the devil right now, worshiping in other religions. You have to listen to what people are saying, follow them in the book and read the scriptures that they're teaching from and make sure that what they're saying is in context. And then when you have a question, you got to ask a question. And any man or woman that teaches something publicly and then gets offended, if you ask them privately about it, then you got to be careful. See? Anybody says something from the pulpit, you ask a question, their feathers get rough. How dare you question me? Don't you know I'm a man of God or a woman of God? Well, no, but I do have a question. You see, that's the key. That's the key. So these are the things Jesus predicted for the last days. We'll look at some more at another time. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is to look into the word of God and to see that there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Father, you mapped it all out. in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. Help us see these things clearly so that in the last days we will not be deceived. Help us to walk humbly before you, to love you with our whole heart. 
Because we know the more we love you, the more we'll want to know you. The more we get to know you, the more we'll want to love you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.